0: Yes, anyway, so um, what I'd like to do is um, this week we're going to be talking about the crucifixion of Jesus, and so if you could uh, talk to the person beside you and maybe share this. What do you think of when you see a cross, when you see a cross on somebody's neck, when you see a cross maybe outside in a steeple, uh, when you think of the cross, what are those things that come to mind? Maybe it's an experience, maybe... You know, it's an idea. But if we could, let's just share uh, during, light, uh, during the light of, of, of this uh, time. Can we do that right now? Yeah. All right, let's do that. All right, if we could, uh, if I could have your attention again. Let's go ahead and let's, um, let's take this time. All right, you guys like to talk. I, I like that. You guys like to talk. This is awesome. You guys are talkers. Very good. All right. Let's take this time and let's uh, let's take this time and let's um, let's meditate on the Lord. Let's pray, Father. We thank you for your Word and we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the fact that we are redeemed by your name. That the cross is the vehicle of your grace to us. And we pray that as we look into what it means to love and to embrace the cross, that, Lord, you would, uh, just like the song said, that you would um, transform us, that we would not think the same this, uh, this morning, that we would not be the same, but that by the renewing of our minds set on your word, that we would be that much closer, Lord, in our walk with you. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. History has called it the most brutal, the most barbaric, the most evil form of execution that has ever been devised by man. The great Roman statesman in the first century, whose name was Cicero, said, It was the cruelest, most shameful of all punishments. Let it never touch the body of a Roman citizen. No, let it never enter his ears, nor his eyes, nor even his thoughts he was referring to the criminal's punishment of crucifixion. The cross represents the darkest event in all of human history. The cross reminds us of what happened 2,000 years ago on Golgotha's Hill, the murder of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And although we gather at the darkest time to remember this dark uh, act This event actually shines the brightest truth for our lives as Christians. We have a different perspective from the world this morning because we can praise God for the cross. We can look beyond the gruesome form of execution to something far greater, something that gives us hope and joy. Isn't that true? Can I get an amen? I want us to focus on the crucifixion this morning. But from a different perspective, I want us to praise God for the cross. I want us to be grateful for the crucifixion. We can praise God for the cross of Jesus Christ. We want to look at two points this morning and we'll be done. Number one, we can praise God for the cross because it was at the cross that God's sovereignty was shown. Can we show that first point real quick? At the cross, God's sovereignty was shown. There are many today that have the false impression that Jesus was a helpless, hap- hapless victim of some failed revolution. He was like Spartacus, somebody who desired revolution. He desired greatness, but ultimately failed because of the Roman war machine. Because he planned an arrangement and he couldn't carry it out. And so he failed miserably, and he found himself on a Roman cross. That's how some historians view Jesus. But can I ask you, is that how God viewed the crucifixion event? In Acts chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, just listen. In verse 22, Peter is preaching at Pentecost. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is what he says. Here's God's word. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Here we see that Jesus' death was not an accident. It was not a failed plan. The cross was God's set purpose and foreknowledge that God the Father sovereignly planned the crucifixion of his Son. And I want you to see in John chapter 19 that God's sovereignty was shown in two areas as we look at the text. Number one, in the inscription that was placed on the cross. And number two, the prophecies that were fulfilled at the cross. So the inscription that was placed on the cross. As you study the Gospel of John, You can't help but notice a divine fingerprint that is put here. There is a sovereign hand behind the scenes, around every corner, in every one of this human situation. Everything in the Gospels has been leading up to the crucifixion, and we see God's hand in it. The religious leaders may have engineered the demise of Jesus through their mock trials and their false witnesses. Pilate may have made an official decision to execute Jesus on the cross by his power, but in all of this, God's hand was working out his sovereign plan. And that's something we have to understand. It all seems random. And I know Dr. Ken was using the word random many times, because in our eyes, it seems random, but yet God is sovereignly acting through it. I want you to look at God's sovereignty in the inscription that was put above Jesus' cross. Now, it was customary for a crucified man to always have a placard or an inscription that was the reason for the crime or the reason for why he was being punished. Okay? And in John chapter 19, let's look in verse 17. This was the reason for for his crime. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus carrying his own cross. And Jesus went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And here they crucified him with two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. And Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek the chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. I want you to notice that every Jew understood what this phrase meant. So it wasn't talking about just an earthly king and a long succession of kings. The phrase king of the Jews referred to the eschatological king that all of the jews were looking to that the old testaments had prophesied about the jews understood that this phrase king of the jews meant an eschatological messiah and so they were waiting for it they were hoping that jesus would be it but yet here he is on a cross and this sign in essence for his crime read jesus is the messiah Have you thought about that? It's amazing when you consider that though Pilate wrote this of his own free will, yet we see God's sovereign fingerprints behind every detail, right? The religious leaders were indignant. Hey, why this inscription? It could have read, Jesus of Nazareth the rebel. Jesus the insurrectionist. Jesus the madman. Jesus the traitor. Even Jesus... Of Nazareth, the false king, and that 's what they were urging Pilate to write. but you know what he says? What I have written, I have written. This shows that God is sovereign over this part of the crucifixion, even down to the title that was placed on the cross. Think about this perspective it 's interesting. Did you know that a non Christian was the first was the first person who wrote the first? Gospel literature about Jesus. Think about that. A non Christian wrote the first gospel tract, if you're involved with Crew, the first KPG, right, concerning Jesus. It was written by Pontius Pilate. And I want you to see somebody actually get saved reading this gospel tract. In Luke chapter 23, you don't have to turn there, you can if you want. In verse 38, just listen, it says, There was written a notice above Jesus which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you that Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Today you will be with me in paradise. Powerful. Here, two criminals read the same gospel literature. One thief mocked and said, You're not the Messiah. And the other thief trusted and said, you are my Messiah. And he was saved, all because of a gospel tract that was written by Pilate. Pilate wrote it in three languages. He wrote it in Aramaic. That's the language of the Jews living uh, in Israel in the first century. He wrote it in Latin. That's the language of the Romans who were the occupiers during that time. It was the language of the Greeks, the common trade language where the whole world Uh, understands why to show jesus as messiah to the hebrews to the greeks to the romans and by virtue of that to the entire world you see god sovereignly uses an ungodly unwilling roman procurator to write a gospel tract for all the world to see we see god's sovereignty not only in that but also in the fulfilled prophecies Again, there are skeptics that will tell you that Jesus was a charlatan, that Jesus was some uh, con artist, and that he knew the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, and he just endeavored to fulfill those things. In John chapter 19, let's continue with our text in verse 23. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. Listen to this. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. The Jew at this time wore, f- wore five pieces of clothing. They wore, number one, a sa- sandals. Number two, a sudra or a turban, number three, an inner tunic, number four, an outer cloak, and number five, a belt. And the soldiers divided up everything except for that inner tunic because it would be worthless if they divided it, right, because it was a seamless garment, and so they decided, let's cast lots for it. It seemed random, but it wasn't random, was it? It fulfilled the scriptures. Now, how could the skeptics be right? So that while even... While Jesus hung on the cross with no human power to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, here we see God's sovereign hand fulfilling the prophecies. A thousand years, or almost a thousand years before Jesus' crucifixion, in Psalm chapter 22, by the way, in John chapter 19, this was referring to the prophecy found in uh, in Psalm 22. The prophet David prophesied seven things, and I want you to see these seven things. That his clothing, number one, would be divided. That number two, they would cast lots for his inner garment. Number three, that he would be the object of scorn and mocking. Number four, that he would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Number five, the religious leaders would say, he trusted in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him. Number six, that his hands and feet would be pierced. And number seven, that his bones would be pulled out of joint, not broken. Now, why is that? Well, let's look in our text. John chapter 19, look in verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, these things happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. This is interesting. What scripture needed to be fulfilled? Psalm chapter 22, almost a thousand years before this event, These things happen by the will of man, by the machinations and the manipulation of human beings, by the randomness of the situation, so that the scripture would be fulfilled by the sovereign hand of God. Can I get an amen? That is a powerful thought. Man may make decisions. Man may manipulate events. Trials may bring suffering. Situations may appear hopeless and unstable, but God is still on the throne. God is still working things out for good. We might see randomness, but God is sovereign. Let me ask you this morning, what are you going through? Maybe you feel like you can't survive something that's happening in your life, that you can't endure suffering, that these things are so random, so 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 um, uh, unstable that you can't go through it. Remember, the cross shows us That God is sovereign over the affairs of men. And we can praise God for the cross because God is sovereign. God's sovereignty was shown, number one. And then the second point here, God's sacrifice was completed. God's sacrifice was completed. Have you ever meditated on the suffering that Jesus went through? Probably all of us have seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ which brought uproar with so many people. Christians loved the movie, but non-Christians saw it as a snuff film. They saw it as something that is not worthy of being shown uh, about a great man like Jesus. It was just too brutal. Too, you know, too, they didn't understand why it had to be that way. But we as Christians appreciated the suffering because it was very true to historical accuracy that the Roman crucifixion was very different From executions that are going on today. It was designed to be very public. It was a billboard. Don't mess with Rome. And it was designed to leave permanent psychological impressions on the mind. The criminal would be humiliated in every way, and it would be very public, like a billboard. It was designed also to be painful, extremely slow, and agonizing in its process. And the intent was to inflict the most suffering on a person as possible. So Jesus' crucifixion was both public and painful. Let me uh, just recap a little bit of it so we can understand. Jesus had to endure, first of all, scourging. The Romans perfected this practice. They called it the half-death. And here a victim was tied to a post by his wrists and ankles and a whip or a flagellum, as they called it, that actually was a whip with sharp metal pieces attached to it, was used to scourge the victim and to reduce the body to bloody ribbons of raw flesh. It was so brutal that blood would come out of every orifice, the eyes, the ears, the nose. And it was so intense that at some point, every victim would pass out at least once. And they were revived by salt water splashed onto them. Pain was used to bring Jesus to consciousness. After that, we see the mocking and the bullying. Here they strip him of all his clothing, and they take a wreath of thorns, three to four inch thorns, and they jam it into his head, calling it mockingly a crown. Next, they beat him, and they pull out his beard, and they spit upon it, all the while saying, Ave Caesar, hail Caesar. Next, he was crucified. And here they took five inch nails and pounded it into the wrists and the ankles of Jesus. And they positioned him on a cross where Jesus realized the weight from his body pushed him down and his pectoral muscles began to be paralyzed like all crucifixion victims, meaning that they can draw air into their lungs, but they can't draw air out. So the victim would have to push himself up on the cross in order to exhale One commentator said that they were in constant motion to keep breathing so that they literally rubbed themselves uh, up and down raw in order to breathe. The victim would finally die of suffocation, slowly, painfully being asphyxiated. But what's interesting is that some men lived up to nine days before they died. And that is why if soldiers wanted to speed up the process, they would just break the legs of that victim, so the victim could not pull himself up in order to breathe. So the cross was suffering intensified. It was constant, intense pain. It was exposure to the elements. It was mocking and jeering from the crowds. It was the horror of suffocation. Not only that, the Bible tells us that there was spiritual pain involved with Jesus and that he bore the sins of the world upon himself. And there was emotional pain. Jesus being separated from the Father. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But let me share with you. Jesus was willing to endure the pain. He was willing to endure the suffering so that you could be saved. It was for you that he had to go to the cross. And that is why the cross is God's gracious gift to us. The cross is something dear and valuable to us. Have you ever thought about this? It's ironic that this terrible instrument used by the Romans to torture their victims to death was used by God to save the world. This vehicle of hate was transformed as a vehicle of love. That is why we wear a cross today. That is why when we look at a cross, we can be grateful, we can be uh, uh, satisfied. I delight in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ because it is a demonstration of God's love. Now, how is this a demonstration of God's love? Why is the cross love symbolized? Because it's at the cross of Jesus that God's holiness was satisfied. If you're taking notes write that down it was at the cross that God's holiness was satisfied we call this propitiation and if you allow me to let me go into the old testament and let me share with you something that I can tie together I think it'll be very meaningful for you in Leviticus chapter 16 God did something very unique that he had never done in the history of the world or has he done since God decided to dwell with a particular nation and God dwelt with Israel during their wandering in the wilderness. So as as the Israelites wandered in tents in mobile homes, God told Israel, make me a tent, make me a mobile home, and I'll travel with you. But as a reminder of God's holiness and man's sinfulness, so that God could live with sinful man, he told them that his tent needed to be attended to by an army of priests, making continual sacrifices for sin. But one day every year, there was a holiest sacrifice. It was done on the day of Yom Kippur. If you have Jewish friends, you've heard this term, Yom Kippur. It's the highest and holiest day of the Jews. Yom Kippur literally meant covering day. And it was at this day that the high priest would enter into the t- the tent or the tabernacle into the Holy of Holies. It was an area that was set aside. No priest could enter it during the whole year, except for on Yom Kippur, only one man, the high priest, entered in. Now, let me share with you this is really important. There was a curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. This curtain, listen to me, was 90 feet high, 30 feet wide, and a foot thick, and it was seamless. Imagine having something like that in your home, right? It probably wouldn't fit in your home. 90 feet high, 30 feet wide, a foot thick, and it was seamless. Now, this was meant to be a barrier, a formidable barrier, so that no priest, in doing his activities, would accidentally find himself in the Holy of Holies. That no one could accidentally enter in, or they would die, right? And so this was the barrier. There was there was only one piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies and it was the Ark. And the Ark symbolized the very throne of God and the Holy of Holies symbolized the holiness of God. So on Yom Kippur, the high priest took a goat, he went into the Holy of Holies, he slit the throat of that goat, he collected the blood, confessed the sins of God's people for that year and he would sprinkle it on the Ark, what we call the mercy seat of the Ark. Within the Ark were the Ten Commandments, God's express character, who he is, his holiness. So I want you to think about it this way. When God looked down on that mobile home park, right? And when he noticed the Israelites breaking the commands that he had given, this angered God, a holy God, a just God. And when he was angered on the day of Yom Kippur, when he saw the blood sprinkled on the mercy seat, That blood covered over his righteous laws that had been broken time and time and time again in Israel for that year. So listen to me. God was temporarily satisfied and he pushed back his wrath another year. So every year the same ritual occurred, year after year after year. You know why? Because the book of Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. It only pushed it back. So that on the cross, listen to me, on the cross. Oh, I'm sorry. This begs the question then. Why did God prescribe the blood of animals to appease his wrath? Have you ever thought about that? Is God sadistic? Does he just like seeing blood everywhere? Or is God eccentric? Is one of his idiosyncrasies just seeing goats torn apart? Why would God do this? Because Yom Kippur, covering day, foreshadowed something greater. You see, God's plan was set into motion in this text. That Jesus Christ was the perfect high priest. And this foreshadowed him. And when he died on the cross, he came into the holiest place, not with a temporary sacrifice, but with his own perfect blood. To cover sins and to satisfy God's holiness. All the Old Testament sacrifices that were imperfect to take away sin foreshadowed the greatest sacrifice, that Jesus, as the perfect lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world not for a hundred years, not for a thousand years, not for a million years, but for all eternity. Here we see that his sacrifice was completed. John chapter 19, let's look at the text again in verse 28 knowing that all was now complete so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here we see the three most important words in all of human history. So that on the cross, Jesus' last words before he died was "It is finished." Now, we may misunderstand what Jesus was saying. We might think that Jesus was just announcing his death; that here he's on the cross, to everyone around him, he's like, "I'm going to die now," and he said, "It is finished," and he died. Right? But that's not what was happening. The word that's used is uh, for the word "it is finished" is "to tell us die," and "to tell us die" is a Greek word. That says, My mission is complete. Jesus said, To tell us die. And it was a common word used in the first century. It was used by a servant when he came back home at the end of a day. Every assignment his master gave him was completed, and tired but satisfied, he would sigh, To tell us die, it's finished. I've completed all that my master has assigned me to do. It was used by the artist when he painted the last stroke of his masterpiece. Everything he painstakingly created is done. He would proudly step back and exclaim, to die, it's finished. The, uh, uh, the work that I've completed, my masterpiece, is now done. It was used by the athlete when he c- uh, completes a grueling marathon. Every checkpoint is passed, every step endured. Exhausted, he would raise his hands and exclaim, to Tetelestai, it's finished. I've completed the race that is set before me. It was used by the soldier after a brutal, hard-fought battle. He had successfully defeated the enemy. He would place his foot on the neck of his foe, and he would roar, "Die! it's finished. I came, I fought, I conquered. It was used by the merchant as he puts down his last payment on a piece of property. He has paid it in full. The building and the lot are all his. Now he confidently pro- proclaims, to die it's finished. This property is my property. It's all mine. It's paid in full. Do you realize that when Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, to die? meaning that he completed all of those pictures. Jesus was God's servant who obediently executed all the duties that were required of him. In Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross, so that Jesus performed the Father's will by becoming sacrificed for the sin of the world. That Jesus was the prophetic artist who who fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies and pictures concerning himself. And all the foreshadowing in the Old Testament referring to Jesus, he now performed as the masterpiece of salvation. He was that champion athlete who finished the race that was set before him. Jesus finished the work of salvation flawlessly so that we might benefit looking to him now as the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus was that victorious soldier who defeated sin, death, and hell. And here Jesus conquered them by the power of the cross, and the Bible says he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by his crucifixion. Jesus was the redeemer merchant who entered the slave market of sin. Jesus put down the full payment of his blood and bought all of us that were in bondage to sin from slavery to freedom. Can I get an amen? Here, Jesus finished what was set before him. Now, here's the question I have. Was God the Father forever satisfied by his son? If we're saying that now it's complete, that the cross is now the completion of God's plan, was God the Father forever satisfied by the sacrifice of his son? I want you to leave Mount Calvary where John chapter 19 says, Uh, we've looked at the text, and I want you to visit a different mountain. I want you to go to the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah, where now that mobile home tent, the tabernacle, has become a permanent home, the temple, with the same dimensions that are found in the tabernacle that we just discussed in Leviticus, right? In Matthew chapter 27, could we have it here? I want you to see something really interesting. We're leaving Mount Calvary at the same time that Jesus finishes here, notice what happens on Mount Moriah. When Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, from the gospel accounts, we know that it was Tetelestai, it is finished. That's what he said. When Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Verse 51, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rock split. So that when Jesus proclaimed my mission is complete on Calvary, this 90 feet high, 30 feet wide, foot thick barrier, this seamless curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. The gospel writers want you to be absolutely clear that it was not man from bottom to top trying to rip it, but it was God from top to bottom ripping that thing, saying it is finished. There is no separation now, because of my son. I am a holy God, but through my son, you can receive my relationship. Amen? Amen. There is power in the cross that God is forever satisfied in the sacrifice of his son. There is now no wrath to you that know Christ. There is now no separation to you who've received Jesus Christ. And can I share with you that you have eternal security, that if you are found in Christ, if you're born into the family of God, Not even hell can change that uh, reality for you. That we see that we are forgiven because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Can I share with you, we can rejoice on this dark day, amen? Because of the sovereign plan of God and his finished work on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes just for a moment. Before we take offering, I want you to meditate on the idea of the cross. And I want to tell you, and this is is the most encouraging thing, that if you are a child of God, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. That once you are saved, you will always be saved. That once you have committed to him, he will keep you the rest of your earthly days and on into eternity. Father, I pray that the cross would be our anthem. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said,